I have moved back. I really want to ask you to move frontward, but I know what that's like, like pulling teeth. And I know, I know about that too, because you know where I usually sit, it's right back there, so what can I say? The one time before we turned everything around, I made everybody sit in the overflow area for my class, and that went over like a lead balloon. So um, I just wish there was a way to squeeze this room together, because I always feel like you're so far apart and so away from each other. I used to tease when I was a pastor that I was going to um, get all the pews put on a track, and, and the, it would, the front pews would disappear underneath the floor and go, go back around, so I could just push a button at the front and everybody would just move, automatically move forward. So this could, I could, this could never get anybody to do the engineering on that, but it, I thought it was a good idea. So we're going to be studying the book of James together, um, and I say that meaningfully together because I encourage you to uh, read the book of James and uh, think about it, be ready to ask a few questions you won't get answers to and uh, contribute to our class. Um, I have learned over the years that I often find, learn things, many things from those of you that are sitting out there, so I appreciate your input and, and uh, sharing with us from time to time. Um, several of you have already asked this morning about Beverly. Uh, appreciate your prayers for her. Uh, she, she had surgery two weeks from tomorrow. Uh, as far as the re recovery from the knee surgery, she seems to be doing very well. Therapy is going very well. She had no infections, no rejections, whatever. She's had a history of lower back problems over the years, and they are acting up pretty severely right now. Um, she said this morning that the medicine she's on takes the edge off for about an hour and then it's gone. Um, so she's been able to maintain that over the years by um, exercises and just sort of taking care of herself. But right now she's unable to do the things that she'd like to do. So I know she would appreciate your continued support and prayers. Um, she has her follow-up appointment on Tuesday. She's hoping the doctor might be able to give her some more satisfaction medically about the pain that she's uh, dealing with. So she, all I can say is that she just, is a, she just goes. She's a trooper, so she's um, pretty unstoppable, I guess is the word they use. Um, so appreciate your prayers. Mike is doing well. I was talking to Amos and Elsie. Mike is doing well. He goes back on Wednesday to have his stitches out, having continued difficulty with swelling in his toes, but as we can all can imagine, that's the lowest part of our extremity and the part that's hardest to keep that fluid from retaining in. So pray for Mike and his continued recovery. I know he's really, uh, by, you know, shot at the bit to be here and be out and be around. Um, he called Beverly and talked to her some yesterday, and uh, so that was nice, Beverly, and appreciated that. So that's our updates. Um, so allow you to share your prayer request and so we can pray for them during the week and then we'll ask you to continue to give us updates from week to week about what we're uh, praying for with you, okay? So anybody else with a prayer request for today? Ask them for pray for Beverly and also for Mike Fry. Anybody else? Anne's here, continue obviously praying for her. Anyone? Mike, Mike Maiosi leaves this week. Um, for Mexico. We've gone, I think, eight days uh, total on that trip. They're having two 
teaching conferences in Mexico. They're uh, testing a new field, new area of pastors. Um, Mike and a man from Idaho, Scott Baselio, is going with Mike, and also a man named Miguel is going as a translator. Anyone else? Seriously? Nobody? Oh, sorry. Sorry, Brenda. Okay. Pray for Brenda's son, Michael, and for his need of Christ. Okay, let's talk to God. Father, thank you for your grace and mercy to us. Thank you for your steadfastness in our lives. We waver. We are, as the book of James describes it, sometimes like a double-minded man, that the winds that are, the waves that are tossed by the wind we thank you for your steadfastness. We thank you for your word, that it's alive, powerful, sharpened than a two-edged sword, that it does change our lives. I pray that as we encounter your word today, that our lives will be changed and directed to serve you and worship you with um, more desire, more fervency. We thank you for the opportunity to pray for others. We continue to pray for Brenda's son, Michael, and his uh, need of Christ, for my for Mike Fry as he continues to recover from his surgery, that you will give him patience and endurance, give the doctors great wisdom as they continue to respond to his needs. We know that he has other surgeries coming up. Also, thank you for what you've done for Beverly, but pray also that you would give her relief today from the pain that she's dealing with. And again, thank you for each person here, for Anne and for her steadfastness. And I know there's others with things that they need to share but aren't for whatever reason, and just ask that you'll provide for them the grace is sufficient to meet our needs in Jesus' name. Amen. So my intention, as those of you that are not familiar with my classes, I will uh, try to start our class at 20 after 9. That gives people time to get here and do their coffee thing and whatever and still get here. And, and my, my goal will be to leave, be done by 5 after 10 so that we have time to resettle, relocate, uh, do whatever you need to do between now and the start of the service. Won't always get done, I guess, at five after, but for those of you who know, I'm pretty dependable on that, so um, we'll work on that, okay? So if you turn with me to the book of James, please. Have some introductory stuff to deal with from the book of James to begin with. Um, some of you, th this is a little book that I really love. Um, been many, many years since I taught through it the first time in a Sunday school setting, and uh, it was just a, a really a challenge and a blessing to me as I studied at that time, and uh, trust it will continue to be. I don't know how many times I've uh, taught or preached through it in a, over the years, but few, a few, I know. But um, you might be aware that uh, Martin Luther sort of, in at least one of his writings, challenged the, the validity of the book or the value of the book. Uh, called it an epistle of straw. That was basically because of the fact that James has in chapter 2 the emphasis on the faith must have works. Of course, Martin Luther is responding or reacting to the whole Catholic system, which was based upon works. And so, it, you know, he sort of thought that was undermining um, some of the other teaching in the, in the New Testament, where it's just basically showing a different vantage point of it. Uh, but, it, but it's interesting that he did quote the, the book, from the book in other places in his writings. And uh, he did not exclude the book. He just questioned 
you know, was it as important as studying Romans or as important as studying Ephesians or whatever. Um, it's right up here she is. You ought to be able to identify her by this time. Um, so, uh, so, he, so that was what, what was going on. Uh, one of the other things is that it was not written by an apostle, which was one of the uh, checkpoints that the early church councils used to determine whether a book was, should be a part of the canon, a valid part of the canon. We know there are other books that aren't also, so it was just a factor that was like, well, maybe it's not written by apostle, maybe whatever. But it's always been included in all the canon decisions, even though there was questions about it. Uh, for instance, Mark was not written by apostle. Uh, Luke was not written by apostle. We don't know who wrote Hebrews for certain, so that book author may not have been an apostle either. So there were other books that are in the New Testament that were included but James was just questioned because of the, that, that question. Uh, the other thing was there was, no, there was no specific addressee, so the church of Ephesus couldn't defend this book, or the church of Thessalonica couldn't defend this book, so it was left without maybe somebody to stand up and say, that's our book, we believe it's scripture, we need you, believe you need to, to use it and whatever. Um, Origen, which was an early church father, quoted from the book of James also. Interestingly enough, Erasmus, who was in the uh, time of the Reformation, a Greek scholar, uh, questioned the fact that the um, book of James had such good Greek. He's, he didn't understand how somebody that grew up in Palestine uh, would have known Greek as well as James seems to, and he also seemed to quote from some of the other Greek writers. So interestingly enough, maybe an argument you would think would be the opposite. He was like, this could... could you know, this, could James, somebody from that time actually written a book like this? And just to quote another person, uh, Calvin uh, had no questions about, about the book. Um, but again, we'll try to understand the book in its cultural and historical context, and, and remember that one difficult passage doesn't disqualify the book from the canon. If we did that, the book of Hebrews certainly wouldn't be in the canon. We'd have to wonder what in the world was going on with it. But so... Uh, one, one difficult passage doesn't discount the whole book or the value of the whole book. It just has a subject, uh, subject that we have to understand in, in, in its significance, in its context. It has always been valued for its practicality. It's, an easy, it's a book to easily find something that touches your heart, that, that gives you guidance or direction. Uh, it's, been con it's concise. It doesn't take very long to read through it or read a section of it. And it has some really, really interesting and excellent illustrations. And I would say, and this was something I'm quoting, but this is, I would agree with this, it probably was more ne neglected than rejected. Probably more neglected than rejected over the years. And it is, does fall into the category of being a wisdom book. Just simply has pointers about how to live life for God. So it's a wisdom book. I'm... Pretty sure, though, I'm not sure I can go back that far in my memory anymore, but I'm pretty sure the first time before I actually studied the book to teach it, if somebody had walked up to me and said, Who's, who wrote the book of James, I probably would have said, well, John's brother, the son of Zebedee. I think that would have been my response. Uh, I think that's probably, possibly a lot of people that don't have any uh, background or haven't been given any indication along the way might also draw that conclusion that it was actually written by by uh, James, the brother of John, the son of Zebedee. 
Um, we don't believe that's true. We'll look at that for just a moment or two. So if you'll turn with me to Acts chapter 1, verse 13. And again, um, you shouldn't feel bad if you don't want to turn page to page and do that. If that's just not something you're comfortable with doing or used to doing, don't feel bad about that. Um, it's something I encourage you to try to do. It's easier to get more out of the passage if you're looking at the context maybe of sometimes when a verse is read. In Acts chapter 1, verse 13, and this is after uh, the last re- uh, appearance of Christ. It says, I read verse 12, Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey. And when they had entered, they went up into the upper room where they were staying. Peter, James, John, and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas the son of James. How many times is the word James, the name James mentioned in in that verse? Huh? How many times? Three times. So right away we have three, I guess you could say, possibilities of who might have written this book. Uh, we don't believe that any of these three names actually did write the book, but it shows you that it, the name does appear along the way, and uh, as John is saying up here, that it's a common, a common name. Uh, while you've got your scripture open, turn with me to Matthew 13. Matthew 13, verse 55, if you have notes, you, pro- that you can follow along in the notes. They'll give you pretty much where I'm going with some of this stuff. Matthew 13, 55 says this, a uh, question raised, is this not the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary and his brothers James, Hoseas, Simon, and Judas? And his sisters, are they not all with us? When- where then did this man get all these things so they were offended at him? Also, I have bit down on your paper a passage in Mark 6.3. It's the same uh, reference just in the other synoptic gospel. So if you turn with me to John 7.5. So we see here that there is a James that's associated with Christ. It's Christ's family, one of his brothers. And this is the commentary that that John the Apostle gives on these brothers in John 7, 5. For even his brothers did not believe in him. So obviously, it's one of those things that also talks in the Scripture about a prophet being without honor in his own country. Here's a man, grew up, you know, I mean, I don't think we should imagine. um, Sometimes there are imaginary stories about Jesus doing all kinds of things, healing Killing a bird with a broken wing and, and making something out of clay and it turning into turning alive and so forth and so forth. I don't think we should actually uh, have thoughts about Christ doing miraculous things prior to his coming out in his public ministry. I think he was sinless in his childhood, which is uh, amazing enough, but I don't think we should imagine him doing things that are more uh, directed toward his public ministry. Uh, as a child. So here's these brothers, this brother, you know, as it's 
saying goes, he put his pants on the same way every morning as they did. So why was he any different than they were? And so, um, so we see the, the uh, we see James listed as part of that family, and we also see the fact that at least during the public ministry of Christ, he was not um, a believer at that point in time. So why why do we discount the um, James, the brother of John, or the son of Zebedee, as a potential writer of the book of uh, James, Epistle of James. Turn with me to Acts 12.2. You might say, well, why is this all important, or is this important, or whatever? It's got a different level of importance, I, I would say, but I think it does help us to know what we're talking about, in case somebody ever, you ever enter into a discussion with somebody about the book of James. I think it would only be an, an indication of ignorance if you sort of tried to tell them that it was James, the son of, of Zebedee, that wrote the book when it is very unlikely that he did write the book. Um, and so that's why we're, I guess, taking the time to do this. But notice in Acts 12, 2, this is the, again, I'll read with verse 1. Now about that time, Herod, the king, stretched out his hand to harass some from the church. Then he killed James, the brother of John, with a sword. And because he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded further to seize, seize Peter also. Now it was during the days of unleavened bread. And so here, Herod brings a end, a short end, to uh, James, the brother of John's life in Acts chapter 12, verse 2. And, but then it doesn't take us very long that we can pick up another James. Look down on down in verse 17 of this chapter. And um, I'll read again, verse 16. Now Peter continued knocking, and when they opened the door and saw him, this is when Peter was delivered from prison, they were astonished. But motioning to them with his hand to keep silent, he declared to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said... Go tell these things to James and to the brethren. And he departed and went to another place. So, oh, who is this James? All of a sudden it's important enough that Peter includes him in this grouping of people that are to be notified that Peter has been, by, by the power of God, delivered from prison. And so we have one James being put to death in verse 2 and here in, this, in verse 17, we have another James that all of a sudden has become an important part of this early church setting. And so then there is, you know, what, what is going on. There's a couple other passages here in Acts that I want to come back to if I don't forget. But let's turn over to 1 Corinthians 15, 7. And please, you, if you have a question, um, please feel free to raise your hand if I'm not being clear or if I'm going too fast or whatever. But Acts 15, 7. This is, of course, in the section where the gospel is being defined in, in verse 3. And in verse 7, after that he was seen by James, then by all the apostles. Then last of all, he was seen by me also as by one born out of time. Now that is a reference to, um, again, Christ and his resurrection. And again, for Christ appeared to this particular brother and uh, brought by his sovereign grace, brought this brother out of his darkness into the marvelous light of God's grace and God's mercy. And so something would hap happen here that we do not have the details of or the recordings of, but somehow 
this happened to take place. Now turn on over to Galatians chapter 1. And in verse 19, Galatians 1, 19, again, this is from Paul, Paul's hand. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to see Peter and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. Now, James, in the mind of Paul, who is also an apostle out of time, out of, out of not the original group of apostles, but also an apostle of God, recognizes, includes James, the brother of Christ, as one of the apostles. So putting all the pieces together, you see this James, who we link back to the brother of Christ as, as having a rather elevated place uh, here in this early church setting. Uh, a couple other passages in Galatians chapter 2 and verse 9. Um, let me read verse 8. For he who worked effectively in Peter for the apostleship, the circumcised, also worked effectively in me toward the Gentiles. And when James, Cephas, and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that had been given to me, they gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. They desired only that we should remember the poor, the very thing which I, which I also was eager to do. Now again, Paul comes on the scene after Acts chapter 12, when James, the brother of Zebedee, is already passed on, is already dead. And then in verse 12 of the same chapter, before, um, for before certain men came from James, he would eat with the Gentiles, but when they came, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing those who were of the circumcision. Very interesting that Peter was intimidated. I will use that word. Maybe you don't like that word, but was intimidated by James, who was not there, just simply representatives from James was there, and Peter was intimidated enough by him, they changed his behavior. So shows how quickly this man rose again to a place of prominence, can I use that word, authority, in, in the church, in, in this setting. And then turn back to the passages in Acts, 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 excuse me, Acts chapter 15. So this whole question comes up, which the book of Galatians focuses on, this whole question comes up about the necessity of following the um, principles of the law in reference to salvation, in reference specifically to sanctification. Uh, some were teaching that in order to be sanctified, in order to really be doing what God wanted you to do, you need, men need to be circumcised and they need to be following the rules of the Old Testament, uh, specifically the book of Deuteronomy. So all that becomes a very important issue. The book of Galatians is basically written to address that issue. But the church gathers to deal with this issue in Acts chapter 15. And let me read beginning with verse 1. And certain men came down from Judea and taught the brethren, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Therefore, when Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and dispute with them, they determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders about this question. 
So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through Phoenicia and Samaria, describing the conversion of the Gentiles, and they caused great joy to all the brethren. And when they had come to Jerusalem, they were received by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they reported all things that God had done with them. But some of the sect of the Pharisees who believed rose up, saying, It is necessary to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. And then uh, down in verse 13, And after they had become silent, James answered, saying, Men and brethren, listen to me. Simon has declared how God at the first visited the Gentiles, take out of them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as is written. And so again, we find James rising to the occasion. These men have gathered for a decision. They go back to Jerusalem to find the wisdom that's there, uh, the, the insight that's there. Again, we have probably several uh, people that would have been uh, very familiar with Christ's teaching directly. So they're not just talking about something that somebody else has taught them, but they've actually heard this teaching directly from Christ. They go back to Jerusalem to get a decision, to get some direction. And uh, James is the name that pops out of this passage as the individual that is going to lead this discussion, going to lead this response. The, there is, um, this is a little technical thing. Uh, this is the kind of thing that take, would take, I guess, study, a lot of study and a lot of thought about it. But there is actually familiarity, similarity, I should use the word, between the way that James expresses himself in this little passage here and the content of the book that's written, the Epistle of James. There's actually familiarity. Um, people that study it from original language standpoint and from vocabulary and so forth find a very strong parallel between the book of James and this little discourse that the man James, uh, church leader James here gives. So there is a, again, a little bit of something here in this context. And then finally, for this discussion, on over to chapter 21 and verse 8. And it's actually 21.18. And when, I'm going to read from verse 17. And when we had come to Jerusalem, the brethren received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James and all the elders who were present, when he had greeted them, he told in detail these things which God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified the Lord. And they said to him, You see, brother, how many myriads of Jews there are who have believed, and they are all zealous for the law. And so here again, James, then James comes up. So I believe that the author of the book of James is, again, we saw three Jameses right away in that Acts chapter 1 passage. Uh, the James that we believe wrote the book of James, of course, not included there, but has other references, specifically in Galatians and 1 Corinthians and Acts. So I believe that the author of this book is uh, James, the brother of Christ. Any thoughts about this before I go on to the, move on along the way at all? Again, you say how important it is. It's not as important as the text, obviously. It's not important as God's word, obviously, but it is, I think, important to have knowledge and to be aware of what uh, we're going with. You have a question, John? Well, could it be that if any of it contentionalizes of the author um, of the book of James, could you just say James is a com was a common name in those days? 
we have three possibilities. I don't think there's a possibility, three possibilities. I think there, I don't, what you're saying is we need to leave it open to three possibilities, and I don't, I'm not going to stand here and tell you that what I just taught you was a waste of my time. I think it's one person that wrote the book of James. So the date is uh, also in question. It seems to have been written before this issue of Law and Grace comes up, which Galatians writes. Galatians is one of the early books of, of Paul. Uh, it also probably is written prior to Acts chapter 15. And so the uh, book of James is probably written historically sometime between Acts chapter 12, when James sort of begins to come on the scene, and Acts chapter 15, historically-wise, time-wise, putting it someplace in the, 40s, the late four, mid to late 40s A.D., so uh, relatively soon after um, Christ was here and ministered. Um, I alluded to a little bit ago about the, um, the relationship between Jesus and his brothers and sisters in, in the home growing up, in the carpenter's home there in Nazareth. Um, Again, it appears from the reference that John makes in John chapter 7 that these brothers didn't believe, but that doesn't mean they weren't aware of what Christ was teaching. It doesn't mean that after he starts his public ministry that it doesn't mean that there wasn't encounters between him and his family. That wasn't time that they, he didn't sit down with them and have a meal and, and get questioned or have discussions or whatever. So, you know, we shouldn't put them in some isolated on an island situation that they didn't know what was going on. I think they were certainly well aware of what was going on. They heard what Christ was teaching, and they just didn't believe at that particular point in time. Um, most of us have some point in our life when we didn't believe, right? All of us, I know. I'm just teasing. Um, and uh, apart from God's working in our hearts and lives, we'd still be unbelievers. And so um, that, that happened in, in James' life also. So the date is there, again, sometime in the, that mid to late 40s, prior to, I would say, obviously, before the book of Galatians is written. Um, some may not consider this really a um, book on theology, and it's not like some of the books of Paul where he is very uh, deliberately speaking on a subject and drawing conclusions about that subject, and then sometimes adding practical uh, suggestions about how to use that uh, thoughts in our lives. Um, it doesn't really... Um, doesn't really follow some of the theological patterns that, John, that Paul does in his, in his writings, but um, it basically follows a basic Old Testament theology. Uh, what he teaches is basically what any believing uh, Jew would have believed at that point in time. Some of the things that we begin, that we do see pick up is his reference to elders in James chapter 5, uh, which is a part of uh, church, um, the church. Uh, he um, starts right out with a reference to the fact that Christ is Lord, that Jesus is Lord, which of course in itself is astonishing when you consider the words of John chapter 7 that the brothers didn't believe. And here right away he right, right, declares the letter right off to begin with. I will say that some have raised an objection as to, well, if, if this is James, the brother of Christ, why didn't he just tell us? Well, I, I think that you can see the other side of that a little bit in the side that he was being humble and he was not trying to gain some kind of popularity or, or whatever by declaring himself that way. He wasn't trying to find acceptance to this epistle by, by using that. He wasn't pulling that, pulling that card. What, what do we call that? Um, um, anyway, you know what I'm saying. Sometimes we, 
when he pulled that card out to impress somebody or whatever. He wasn't trying to do that. Now, he could have, obviously, if we're, our conclusion is correct, but he just chose not, not to do that. He certainly uh, shows an understanding of God and his purposes in the world in the book of James. Um, obviously, he was influenced by uh, Christ's teaching. You can see that again in the, in the, the wisdom-type setting. They uh, take a background back like to the Beatitudes, to, to, the, to the Sermon on the Mount teachings. Um, he very clearly get, tells us some things about who God is and who is Jesus. So right away, I'm turning back on my Bible to the book of James. Um, this simply starts out with um, this reference that he just has his name at the beginning. Again, that was quite common. Obviously, we see that from Paul's writings also. Different in the way we write things. We, we address it to someone, and then we, at the end of the letter, sign our, sign our name. You have to get to the end of the letter to find out who it was. Different there, back there. Um, in here, in I'm reading again. I'm reading from the New King James. Um, I know many of you are reading from the ESV and some other English uh, versions. I'm reading from the King James basically because it's what I could find a fairly large print uh, Bible in um, at a reasonable cost. Found it at Ollie's a few years ago, so you know that's why I use it. I, I'd used my New King James Bible long before that, but I found this one, and so I'm continuing to use it for a class. Hope it doesn't cause too much confusion. Um, I will just say that I, I wish all of our English versions would do away with whatever other substitute word they've chosen to use. In the New King James, it uses the word, uses the word bondservant. I wish it would just simply say slave. I think anything less than that just weakens the whole impact of what the word means in its cultural context. I understand being a slave today and Talking about slaves today is not popular. It's not politically correct. But I really wish that our English Bibles would all just simply use the word slave and, and be done with it. Um, because that's what these people were. Uh, a significant portion of the population were slaves. They belonged to someone else. They served someone else. They were dependent upon someone else. That's who they were. And that's who we are. As believers, we belong to someone else, we're dependent upon him, we serve him, and we need to do it with gladness. We need to do it with wholeheartedness. And so we're stuck with what our English versions have done, uh, but I really, really wish that they would just have stuck with the word slave and just be done with it. Because that's really what the emphasis of the word is, is that. Now again, whether it be our American history or whatever. There were some that were treated better than others. There were others, some that had a better lifestyle than others. Um, but it was a part of the culture. It was a part of what it was. And thankfully, we do not have to be mistreated, will not be mistreated by our master. Uh, we will be always highly honored and loved by our master. And so we do not need to fear being a slave of Jesus Christ. Simply stated. Interestingly enough here that, um, again, and some of you have heard this from myself or other people, but in the original language, the Greek languages, the Greek wrote, they wrote and put words in. The word order is very important. Now, we follow 
simple grammar when we write. We usually have a sub subject, a verb, you know, and then we have a, a direct object or a predicate nominative or whatever afterwards. We, we typically have the subject and the, and the verb and then some other thing, and then we have our modifiers that are mixed into that sentence. But we have a pretty clear formula about the way we write. If, if somebody would talk differently than that, we would all be shaking our heads or trying to catch up with what somebody was trying to say. And I'm not even going to try to stand up here and give you an example because it's, I, would, I would have to write out the example and read it to you, you know, if I, if I tried to say that because we just are so, we're ingrained to speak subject, verb, so it's noun, noun, verb, noun, or adjective. That's the way we, that's the way we talk. The Greeks did not do that. They wrote things, what was important got first. And, so, and the reason I'm saying all that is because James says this. Literally, literally James says, James, of God, or you can insert, belonging to God in the Lord Jesus Christ, slave. That's what's important. So what, what's important to James out of this passage is that he belongs. He is part of God and part of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he is a slave to them, but the belonging is where James is putting his emphasis. So I'm just hoping that will be somewhat of a sort of an encouragement to you along the way, I guess. Just a thought as we move on. So James is writing. He declares this himself this slave of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, I think it's just so amazing that he just starts out. This brother did not believe. This brother that grew up with this man in his house, watched him work, worked beside him, and so forth every day, declares here so openly that this one, Jesus Christ, is Lord, okay, is the Lord. Three, three words here describing this um, individual, the God-man, the perfect Son of God. He's Lord, he is Savior in Jesus, and he is the anointed one, anointed one. he is the Messiah, and so we have these three descriptive terms describing this particular individual. And the readers, we didn't talk about readers earlier when we were um, talking about all the introductory stuff, but the readers are to the 12 tribes which are scattered abroad. Now, historically, you are all aware that 10 tribes were taken into captivity in the, late, in the early 700s uh, B.C., never to be brought back as a group to the land of Israel. They are sometimes referred to as the lost tribes of Israel. And then the two tribes were taken into captivity then in, in the first, first round, well, it's about 605 B.C. and the last one in 586 B.C. by the Babylonians. They did have the privilege of coming back and, and reestablishing Jerusalem, reestablishing a temple, and so forth. But notice this Jewish heritage they are still identifying as a group of 12. James is well, certainly well aware that there's only two tribes back in the, the land, but as far as he's concerned, he's writing to any person that has of Jewish heritage, of Jewish ancestry, he's writing to them all. Even if maybe they don't know that that's who they are, he's writing to them. He's including them all in this, in this grouping of these 12 tribes. I think we, when we think about that, then we can think about the fact that Israel has been, at this point in time, dispersed for 700 years, okay? 
basically probably like 750 years at this point in time. Israel has, from the initial time, they were dispersed. But then also, in a more immediate context, Jewish believers has been, have been, been dispersed as is recorded in Acts chapter 7 and 8. As they were, as they were thrust out, caused to, to flee Jerusalem because of persecution and those that could not afford to live there. They were, would have been people that were in marginal incomes and so forth. Not, not them only, probably, probably also leaders of the church were forced to leave. They would have also been part of this dispersion that James has in his mind as he's writing. So James has a big picture of who he's writing to in this readers. And so this letter is intended to go uh, on a very, very broad uh, situation. So we have the author, we have the, the readers here, and uh, this word greetings is the word, one of the words that those that know more about it than I do that say that there's this similarity between the Acts chapter 15 and the book of James. The word greetings is the same word that James uses there in Acts chapter 15. <clears throat> and he <clears throat> starts right out in this little book by giving a command. How many of you like to be told what to do? No, don't raise your hand. All of us have probably just a little bit of whatever when somebody starts telling us what to do. Um, unless we've already willingly, you know, acknowledged that that person is, is, our, is leading us or guiding us or, you know, facilitating us or whatever. But, you know, if somebody just walks up to you after class and says, I want you to move. Why? Why do I have to move? Okay. Where do you want me to go? What do you want me to do? You know, we don't have, they don't take real well to that. Um, Isaac probably understand, but, you know, the military works really hard at breaking you so that you forget that desire to push back. Um, so that they, you know, they, they're very diligent about working on that as you first get into their, under their thumb. Um, but so the very first thing that James does here, he, he, first of all, he includes them as family, my brethren, and then he says, count, count. This is to be something that they are to do. This is a command. This is not an option. This isn't if you feel like it, you know, uh, take notice of what I'm going to say here. No, when, when he says it, it's very clear that it's a command. Now, again, I'm not sure I'm not telling you anything different or new, but we do that by, a lot of times by tone of voice, sometimes maybe by, by eye contact or body language. We communi communicate a command by, by the, pretty much the tone of voice, basically. Uh, in, the, in most languages, other than English, there's a particular way that word sounds in order to, to convey the fact that it's a command. So you can also get the voice inflection in it if you want to, but just the sound of the word, just the way the word is spelled and then the way the word is sounded out is unique in itself. It identifies it as being a command. And so James starts right out, these readers going like, whoa, hard to get, you know, I'm only X, however many X number of words into this epistle and you're already going to start telling me what to do? I know you wouldn't have that reaction, but whatever. So this word count is a word that is used by, I'll, I'm going to use the word bookkeeper. It's by the person that is, draw, is adding up numbers and, and adding, getting to the bottom line, total at the bottom. This is, this is that bottom line. He says, 
I want you to consider all the facts, consider the circumstances you're in. I want you to add it all up. And at the bottom line, the bottom of that line, I want you to conclude that this is joy. That this is joy. Now, sometimes we add up our checkbook, and we hope when we get done balancing our checkbook that we really still have money left in the checking account and that we don't, are not in the negative, right? That's our goal. That's our desire, okay? So that's the idea. So count it all up. Now, you could draw a conclusion at the end that this is a horrible situation. I hate it. I'm going to be miserable in it. I'm going to, I'm going to wallow in, the, in my misery or whatever else. But James says, no, that's not, what, that's not the conclusion I want you to draw. I want you to draw a conclusion. Yes, he's not saying to ignore anything, not put your hands over your eyes and pretend like things are better than they really are. I just want you, when you get down to the end, I want you to draw the conclusion that you can be in a state of joy. J-O-Y. So, I'm going to ask you a question, and then I'm going to say that you have to think about it for the next week. But what is joy? What is biblical joy? Okay? I want you to think about it from that vantage point. What is biblical joy? Um, let me just see if I can. F so, the word, word joy or joyful or joyous, forms of the word joy, appear in um, the English Bible 208 times, okay? The word rejoice or a form of that could be rejoiced, past tense or whatever, appears 161 times. So, um, 369 times the word joy or rejoice or a form of that word appears in our English Bible. Fairly common. Occurs often along the way. Next week we will look at some of them uh, along the way. But So what is joy? Anybody want to tell us before we leave? Satisfaction. Okay. Anybody else? John? Hope or expectation that you're on the right track. Brenda? Faith and trust in God. Faith and trust in God. Okay. Yes, sir. Caleb? Huh? Peace? Peace? Okay. Yes, ma'am. Debbie? Contentment? Okay. Charles? Element of being elated. Happy? Is that what you're trying to say? Yes. Okay. I think that we, some of us saw two young people yesterday that, are, that were very elated. They were very full of joy. As those of you that were able to attend the ceremony yesterday. Yes, sir. Uh, being secured, or protected? secured or protected. Okay. So, we'll, like I said, we're going to look at some verses next week. Um, I want you to consider there's a lot, there's a lot of verses, okay, like, as, you, as you can sell, tell. Some, some of those 
<clears throat> sometimes there's like two, sometimes it'll be like rejoice and joy will be in the same verse, or sometimes it'll be a couple appearances in the same verse, so that doesn't necessarily mean there's that many verses with it that have it. But um, what really started me, I guess, questioning or thinking about all that the word joy can mean in the, in the Scripture, what it all can mean biblically, is when Paul says things like in Philippians where he talks about rejoice, you know, in, in the difficult circumstances that Paul found himself in, what did he really mean when he was telling other people to rejoice? Or in 1 Thessalonians when he tells people to rejoice evermore, what was he really telling them to do in that context, in that concept? Okay? So I uh, just will be fair to all of you. There are two other classes that are meeting at the same hour. If you would like to pursue one of them, that's uh, certainly understandable. But I trust you'll be back. I encourage you to read the book of James. Um, it doesn't take long to read through it. Um, I can't, you know, I would suggest you read it once a week as, while we're studying it, just to keep in context. Um, but um, you'll do what you can. So thank you for being here. Thank you for a little bit of involvement allowed you to have. And we'll move on. Let's pray. Father, thank you again for your word. Thank you that it's alive and powerful and it changes our lives. And I pray that we will, as a part of this brief time, reconsider our relationship to God, relationship, relationship in the sense of being a slave, and that we'll also certainly focus on counting it all joy. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. Lord bless you.